this one piece that I did uh, called Superman, Jesus Without the Mess. <laughs> and uh, I, in it, I basically, you know, I'm being a little bit cheeky, but in it, I basically talk about how Superman was my moral model and how he served the same sort of function that for me, that Jesus does for a lot of people and that I tried to have Jesus serve for myself when I was younger. And, you know, Jesus just, he didn't make the cut. You know, Superman's got better powers, a better outfit, <laughs> a more coherent origin story. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Heart Speaks. For this episode, I'll be speaking with my friend Angel Eduardo, whose deity of choice is Superman. I'm kind of kidding, but not really. Basically, Angel believes we should throw out things like Christianity for a religion with less baggage. And why not use a fiction like Superman to help get us there? I obviously disagreed with certain aspects of that framework, but all in all, this is a great combo about the opportunities and pitfalls of religion how we as a species might evolve into a new way of relating to religion, and even whether getting to live forever would be fun or pretty exhausting. Check out this EP and share with your friends. Hi, Angel. <laughs> hey, girl. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm really excited that you came on the pod. Oh, I, Yeah, welcome. Welcome to the Heart Speaks podcast. I'm really excited also because I've wanted to have an interlocutor that word is so weird, interlocutor, to discuss <laughs> religion and spirituality. And I know that this conversation uh -huh. was sort of launched or prompted with an exchange we had on Twitter. So mm -hmm. on that topic, so I can't wait to, to dive in. But before we do, tell the people who you are, what you're about and, and what, whatever else you want to promote. Uh, let's see. I'm a writer, musician, visual artist. I am the director of messaging and editorial for the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, FAIR. It's a mouthful. <laughs> I co-host the FAIR Perspectives podcast, which you've been a guest on. And what else? I don't know. What else should I tell people? <laughs> Have you ever thought about your car personality? What's your vibe? Do you like the classic fully gas-powered engine? Are you a best of both worlds type? Driving on battery power while keeping gas on reserve just in case. Or are you more inclined to choose a convenient hybrid ride? Whichever your vibe, there's a Hyundai Tucson to match and powertrain to get you there. Hyundai's 2023 Tucson lineup pairs the tech you want with sleek and stylish designs. They paid attention to all the details, the seats, the dash, the available panoramic roof, you name it, Hyundai thought of it. All while making sure each trim has enough room to hold space for your grocery runs, festival nights, and tailgates. Okay, Hyundai. When it comes to your journey, Hyundai is there for every mile. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the 2023 Hyundai Tucson. The 2023 Tucson plug-in hybrid is only sold in California, Colorado, Connecticut, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York, Oregon, Rhode Island, and Vermont. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's good. And if anything else comes up and you want to share it, feel free to like I drop will. that in. Yeah. So where should we begin? You had an exchange on Twitter about Superman. Can you describe uh -huh. what that was about for the audience? <laughs> I don't remember exactly how it, <laughs> how it started, but I have written a lot about Superman. Uh, I'm a big <laughs> Superman fan. I have a little statue mm. up there. I've been a big Superman fan since I was a little kid. I don't remember not being obsessed with Superman. So, mm. you know, there is no memory that doesn't include the desire to run around with a cape or a towel around my neck and all that kind of stuff. 
So I've, there's this kind of visceral, immediate, instinctive sort of attachment to the thing, whatever it is, for whatever the reason is. And then there's the intellectualizing of it that I've done <laughs> in the last 10 years or so. Uh, just thinking about like, why am I still so obsessed with this? Why do I still, you know, why do I still get choked up when I mm. see certain parts from certain movies or when I read certain quotes or things like that? And I think that probably what we were talking about on Twitter was this this one piece that I did called Superman, Jesus Without the Mess. <laughs> and <laughs> I, in it, I basically, you know, I'm being a little bit cheeky, but in it, I basically talk about how Superman was my moral model and how he served the same sort of function that for me, that Jesus does for a lot of people and that I tried to have Jesus serve for myself when I was younger. And, you know, Jesus just, he didn't make the cut. You know, Superman's got better powers, a better outfit, <laughs> a more coherent origin story. And I think the one thing that I think is the most important, which, you know, Superman and Jesus don't share, there are a lot of commonalities and, you know, people really shove the commonalities in your face, especially lately in media. Um, <laughs> Do they? <laughs> I first signed up for Butcher Box a few months ago, actually, because I was looking to eat meat. I love meat, but I wanted to make sure my meat was humanely raised. Uh, I believe in having this sort of circle of life relationship with the world. And ButcherBox was an organization, a company that I came across that actually was able to manifest that for me. And I've been buying meats from them ever since. So I'm super, super happy to partner with ButcherBox, especially now with the Thanksgiving season coming up. The main course for Thanksgiving dinner can sometimes be a main source of stress but not anymore. ButcherBox is offering our listeners free turkey with their first order. You can sign up today at butcherbox.com heartspeaks and use code heartspeaks to get one 10 to 14 pound turkey for free in your first box. That's butcherbox.com heartspeaks and use code heartspeaks to claim this deal. Yeah, it's about as subtle as a mace, I think. I think huh. is what I wrote. But the one thing that they do not have in common is the complete and total understanding that Superman is fiction. Mm -hmm. it, it's totally made up. Somebody started drawing on a piece of paper and poof, there he is. Mm -hmm. And no war, no violence, no hatred, no division on, on its basis or in his name. So mm -hmm. you get all the good and none of the bad. That was kind of the, the crux of the piece. And then, you know, whenever... Uh, we get into it on Twitter about, you know, the need for religion, the need for spirituality. Yes. The point that I make, really, it's, it's not about Superman, really. It's just about the fact that you can have a connection to, a, to higher ideals and you can have a connection to a larger, something larger than yourself mm -hmm. without traditional religion or traditional mm -hmm. religious beliefs. You need not believe anything on insufficient evidence to have that same sort of spiritual connection to the world or, mm -hmm. or to have a moral code. So let me see if I understand everything you're saying. And you can tell me if I'm off or not. So mm -hmm. but basically what you're saying is that the difference between Superman and Jesus, as Jesus is traditionally understood within a religious context, is mm -hmm. that Superman has all of the like moral fiber and I guess, a capacity to move people towards uh, the transcendent without the baggage or the extra stuff of having to believe that you have to like 
go out and defend a belief in Superman to the death Mm. or without sort of like dogma that comes with believing in Jesus such that if a person says they don't believe in Jesus, you feel you you get all in your feelings and then you have to like, if you're, (laughs) if you're a Christian, you know, is that, is that more or less accurate? Yeah, basically the other way, you know, I've said it a million ways at this point, but I, I basically say that if you take Jesus as one among many wise teachers Mm-hmm. And you kind of, you know, distill for yourself the good stuff that he is supposed to have said and mm-hmm. kind of leave behind some of the weird stuff or some of the nonsensical <laughs> stuff, some of the straight up like that sounds awful stuff. Mm-hmm. If you do that for yourself and he's just one among mm-hmm. many in a pantheon of, of people and a pool of wisdom that you could draw from. Great. Mm-hmm. But that's not that's not usually the deal, right? Usually the deal is no, you accept Jesus as the one and only. He's your gateway to paradise and the afterlife and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, your your mileage may vary, but there's there's a lot that comes with it. There's a lot of baggage. So yeah. As soon as you said that's usually not the deal, I saw a flash of Sam Harris on screen. I was like, oh, <laughs> Sam Harris has appeared um yeah, as an archetype. I get that. Yeah. I get that a lot. <laughs> I, I don't necessarily disagree with the framework that you have proposed. I think I, I think the difference lies in where we choose to prioritize our focus. So I actually think that the interpretation of Jesus or of Christianity is a sort of dogmatic, concretized, you know, religion in the traditional word that or the traditional sense that religion is understood, as opposed to a archetype or a principle that has existed in many different cultures across right. you know the span of time perhaps christianity being the most famous version of that that principle but still at the end of the day a principle i i suspect that rather than and maybe this is not what you're trying to do but rather than trying to completely throw out religion we should work to get people to understand that the way to be in relationship with Christianity is not to read it literally, but to read it symbolically. What do you think about that proposition? I think that that's kind of where, and, and okay, I don't want to, I don't want to sound condescending. <laughs> okay, I we just, know where this is going. <laughs> no, no, it just, I just flagged it in my mind. Yeah. I was going to say it, that this might come off condescending and I don't mean it that way. Okay. It's kind of where I was in, you know, late high school, college. That's kind of where I was, where my thinking was. Okay. Was, oh, you know, the problem is people taking it literally. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, you know, the, the structure and it, it's not the, you know, the books themselves or whatever. Mm-hmm. But the thing is that the books kind of tell you to take them literally and the, the structures tell you to take it literally. And so I think we need to, to divorce ourselves a little bit even more from there. But I do, I do see what you mean. And I do agree that there is wisdom to be drawn from these things mm-hmm. and that they've survived as long as they have for many reasons. And not all of them are, you know, oppression and conquest. Mm-hmm. So there are good ideas there and there are good, you know, rituals there that do something for people. Mm-hmm. My, I guess my thing is, another thing I say all the time is that being religious, traditionally religious in 2022 is mm-hmm. like running Windows 95 on your 2022 MacBook. You know, you can do it, I guess. You could probably figure out how to make that work. But there's so many bugs and there's so many, like it's so, you have to do so many acrobatics to make it work. And there are better operating systems on offer already. You know, we could come up with better ones. There are definitely worse ones, but we can come up with better ones. I think we're up to the task. And so 
we can take, we can draw from the wisdom of all these different sources and put it together and have it coalesce into something that makes more sense and is compatible with you know, our scientific understanding of the world and our practical understanding of how we should be engaging with one another as human beings and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. I would say, I think John Verveke, who I've mentioned to you several times, mm-hmm. has is working on that project. I would also say, I, I do think theory of enchantment is like a small drop in the ocean of projects that might come out of that kind of I question. Agree. And I would not make the same observations of traditional religion that you have made, meaning I wouldn't make, I wouldn't draw the same analogy that you just, that you just drew because I just thought of this study I saw recently where just thinking about the interaction of religion and I guess societal health, there was a study that showed that, you know, there's an increase in deaths of despair that correlate with a decrease in religious attendance as it is traditionally understood. So I'm wondering how you grapple with the fact mm-hmm. that, yes, we need to perhaps transition to a more symbolic understanding our relationship with religion, but to completely dispense with it sort of leaves a vacuum that can be filled with not just, you know, extremism or, or polarization, but also nihilism and depression and, and all of yeah. those kinds of isms. Yeah. Yeah. I, I saw, I saw that same study going around and one thing I've been thinking about a lot lately is one of the most important classes I took in college. It, it happened to be for my major, but I really feel like everyone should take it. Mm-hmm. It should be a general kind of education course. It was called experimental psychology. Mm-hmm. And we had to actually create and run experiments. And we had to learn all about independent variables, dependent variables, right? So, and how to create a like a research environment or an experimental environment where you can really pinpoint what the actual cause of the change is that you're observing, right? So, mm. so in a lab, you can control everything and make sure that if something happens, it's because of the thing you're trying to find out. Yeah. That's, that's the whole dependent, independent variable thing. And I've never forgot the stuff that I learned in that class. And so when you say that, you know, that first of all, correlation is not causation, right? Mm-hmm. That's one of the rules. But, but when you say, yeah, deaths of despair have correlated with declining, you know, religious attendance, right? I would say you know, you can say that it, that, that the variable there is religion itself, mm-hmm. or you can say that the variable there is a sense of meaning and purpose. And mm-hmm. they're not the same thing. Religion offers that, mm-hmm. but there are other ways that we can get those things. And I think that that's kind of what I'm arguing for is that there are better ways to fulfill those needs. Mm-hmm. We can come up with better ways to fulfill those needs and that we can leave behind the stuff that has all this baggage. Mm-hmm. Which and the by baggage, I don't necessarily mean the history because you know there's horrible history with everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bad by baggage, I mean you know generally speaking, if you become a Christian or a Muslim, there are rules. There are things you must do in order to qualify for that category. You have mm-hmm. to do certain things. You have to believe certain things. You have to affirm certain things. You have to behave certain ways. And some of those ways are great. Some of those ways, I would argue, are not great. Mm-hmm. And some of those things you must believe are great. And some of the things you must believe are not great. Uh, but we can, we don't have to kind of take that deal. There are better ones. So yeah, but I guess ways that we can find meaning without those traditional structures and sources. But I guess I, what I'm challenged by is the practicality of what you're saying. Like I hear what you're saying theoretically. I might have some issues with it, but I can, (laughs) I can, I can like take 90% of it, Uh but there's always a liminal let's call it a liminal stage, whereby let's say we're transitioning as a society from 
an old way of being in relationship with religion to, let's say, constructing a new religion. In that gap, in the space between, people will experience absence of meaning. Let's take your description of it. It will take time to construct new ways of making meaning in the 21st century. How do you deal with that gap practically? And how do you deal with the fact that people will experience and are experiencing anxiety, depression, meaninglessness right now? Because it takes time to create those things that you're saying we need to create. Yeah, it definitely does. I think that we already have everything we need, honestly. You know, I I write about this as well. I say, you know, the facts of the universe, for example, for me work in this way. The fact that, you know, we are, uh, George Carlin had this wonderful way of putting it, which is that he, you know, he said, I am simultaneously greater than, lesser than, and equal to the universe. I'm greater Mm -hmm. than it because I can contain it in my mind. So Mm -hmm. I can conceptualize the entire universe, the infinity of it, and that can be in my mind all at once. But I'm lesser than it, obviously, because I'm just this tiny speck in this infinity. Mm -hmm. But I'm also equal to it because I'm of the same atoms as everything else. Everything that that makes up you and me and everything around us was forged in the heart of a star billions of years ago. So -hmm. there's this fundamental way in which we are one and the same, that we are connected, right? And then there's this, Carl Sagan has this beautiful way of saying, you know, we are a way for the universe to know itself. Mm -hmm. That to me is deeply spiritual. That to me is deeply numinous. Mm -hmm. And it connects me with a larger reality and a larger sense of purpose. So when people, when people say, you know, the, the eternal question is what is the meaning of life? Mm -hmm. For me, that's the easiest question in the world. They say, you know, that's the impossible question. For me, it's the easiest question on earth to answer. The meaning of life is to experience it and to Mm -hmm. make that experience as good as possible. Mm-hmm. which means making it as good as possible for others because the better the world around you is, the better your experience is. So automatically now I've, I've slipped into a moral framework just from understanding the reality that I'm in. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's already there. It's just a matter of communicating it, right? And I think that you're doing the same thing. With theory of enchantment, you're saying, hey, look, we already have this thing. Mm-hmm. I just need to tell you about it because you just don't know about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not going around, you know, taking people's crosses away. I'm not telling them, <laughs> hey, stop going to church. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a slow kind of evolution and hopefully people will, you know, modernize their way out of antiquated things and nonsense beliefs, but uh, you can't force people Shade. to Shade. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, like I used to believe these things and I slowly, mm-hmm. I slowly, you know, asking too many questions, not getting good answers. I just slowly shifted my way out of them and then I discovered wisdom in all these other places that were technically forbidden because I was on this team and I had these rules. Yeah. And I thought, well, what's the, you know, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But yeah, you don't force people. You can't force someone to to shift their beliefs, but you can shift people's thinking through communicating. But there is this sense, and I want to say two things about this. The first mm-hmm. is that I also shifted away from belief systems that I held in my youth but I went in a different direction from you. I, I expanded my sense of what these religious, what these, many of these religious traditions mean. I also entered into a relationship with new religious traditions, especially from the East. And there is the fact that, and I know this might feel like an in the weeds point, but there is the fact that Christianity has a very long history, obviously. And there's many influences that went into Christianity, including Gnosticism, Neoplatonism, et cetera. And many of the early, early thinkers, I I guess you could call them, that helped develop Christianity 
had a much more symbolic interpretation of Christianity than what we know of it today, you know, pre-church, pre-Roman Catholic Church uh, influence, etc. So I don't see why it would be impossible, even from that vantage point, to introduce to Christians simply the full vastness of their own tradition and say, hey, the way you assume this has been done forever hasn't isn't actually the case. And let's explore some of these other iterations of Christianity because they might be they might provide more meaning for you, given the circumstances that we're facing today. That's number one. And what was the second thing I, I wanted to say? It's, do you remember the last thing you said? No. No. Yeah, me either. Uh, hopefully it'll come back to me, but uh-huh. um, yeah. So I'll, I'll just, I'll just leave you with that one. Yeah. Well, I'm fine with that. I think yeah. that's great. I'm not against that project at all. Mm-hmm. I, you know, the whole point is removing the blocks and mm. eliminating, eliminating things that are clear nonsense and that don't work <laughs> mm-hmm. and that cause problems. Right. That's all I care about. Mm-hmm. If somebody is, you know, a considers themselves a Christian and behaves ethically and morally and in keeping with, you know, practical mm-hmm. reality and scientific understanding of our world. Fine. That's great. I don't mm-hmm. care what your moral code is in terms of where you get it. Right. So mm-hmm. for example, to get back to the comic book thing, I don't care if you're a Spider-Man fan, <laughs> right? Like that's great. I love Spider-Man too. You know, it, yeah. it's, and with great power comes great responsibility. It's a beautiful, powerful thing to, you know, to anchor your morality. That's great. Mm-hmm. You know, I just happen to prefer this one. But they're all, they're all kind of, I guess the point is that, you know, the, and the thing that a lot of more liberal people say, including Mm -hmm. myself, Mm -hmm. is that all the, all the religions are kind of touching on the same thing. Mm -hmm. They're all attempting to pull from this common thing. Mm -hmm. And so why don't we just keep trying for the common thing instead of settling for one of the many satellites? You know what I mean? Is that, are you envisioning sort of like everyone coming to the same spiritual practices or spiritual tradition when you say, let's try to get to that common core as opposed to touching the satellites? Like what what does that actually mean? What I mean, yeah. So what I mean is that, no, I don't mean we should all get to the same rituals or anything like that. That would be, you know, that would just be boring. For <laughs> but, you know, not interesting at all. I'm fascinated by how wide the variety is, right? Mm-hmm. But But the point is that, they're all reaching for something that I think is fundamentally human. Mm-hmm, that I think mm-hmm. is in it. I think it's innate. I don't think that you know the one of the big questions for atheists is always where do you get your morality from, mm-hmm. if not this authoritarian sky monster yeah. forcing you to do stuff, right? You <laughs> but, should still man that question, by the way. But continue. Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm that's not around. this. That's not the still man version. Yeah, no, I'm kidding around. <laughs> but they say, of course, if you if there's no moral authority, if there's no moral arbiter then why, why would you behave in an ethical way? Right. But to me, the answer is obvious, right? I behave in the way that is conducive to flourishing for myself. And that includes, you know, flourishing for other people, right? I I don't want to be the only person who isn't suffering all the time because then I would end up suffering anyway. Right. So it just, for me, it all, it all comes from fundamental human wiring. We are a fundamentally social and cooperative species. We mm-hmm. collaborate naturally. Altruism just comes out of us, right? The selfish gene by uh, Dawkins, I think, makes that argument. I don't know if he explicitly says that, mm-hmm. but that's what that whole book was for me when I read it, was we are, we are hardwired to cooperate and to develop a sense of ethics that leads to maximizing flourishing. That's all we're doing here. So 
to answer your question more directly, mm-hmm. I think all religions are, are attempts to do that or attempts to kind of crystallize that impetus. Mm-hmm. But settling on one or the other almost necessarily means you're going to miss out on what that actual thing is, right? So you stop reaching once you think you've found it in one of those mm. satellites. And we should just keep reaching. We should keep seeing, oh, well, actually over there, they got that part of it right. Mm-hmm. That seems right. Mm-hmm. I think we've got this part of it right. And they've got that part of it right. That part's definitely wrong. <laughs> but let's keep pushing towards this thing. You know, yeah. we all feel we're propelled toward it. Yeah, I love that, actually. And I, I should say that after I read Paul Tillich's The Courage to Be, I have come to the conclusion that atheism is a necessary evolutionary, I don't know, process, I think, that we as a species actually have to go through. He argues that atheism, especially in the sort of, I guess, European context, was ultimately a revolt against this theistic version of God. The non-steel man version is this sort of authoritarian monster in the sky that that turns everyone, that changes all human beings into objects essentially because if if your conception if one's conception of god is this absolute supreme ultimate subject so to speak in the sky then it turns human beings into objects and human beings can't handle that and will revolt against that and paul Tillich actually argues that a lot of a lot of the both of the some of the impetuses for the two world wars from a psychological perspective were somewhat rooted in a revolt and you you see this in Nietzsche and, and sort of some of his philosophy as well. I did remember what I was going to ask you as you were speaking. I was going to ask you, you know, in my, as I, as I shifted from the more dogmatic version of religion that I grew up with to the version of religion that I'm sitting with now, there was a moment between point A and point B where I experienced a great deal of depression and a great deal of a feeling of being lost. And I would never want to sort of push people, and not, I don't mean like by force, but I do mean in other ways, persuasively, et cetera. I wouldn't want to push people to actually simply dispense with their religions because that could very well result in nihilism. So I'm wondering how you grapple with that complexity. Mm-hmm. I, it's kind of similar to the way that I approach the race thing. So when they, when, so it's the question, the analogous question would be something like, you know, you're this anti-race person Mm -hmm. and you're arguing against the the conception of race and that we all need to wake up to the fact that it's nonsense and we need to stop reinforcing it. But when you take someone's racial identity away, what identity do they have? And they Mm -hmm. might, they might slip into that same kind of nihilism or crisis of meaning, crisis Mm -hmm. of identity, because there's nothing there to replace it. And I think my answer is basically the same, which is no, actually, what the removal of that construct does is reveal to you what has already been there and has been obscured by this construct. You know, so in the, in the case of race, your ethnicity, your culture, your identity as an individual human being, whatever qualities and traits you have, mm-hmm. all those things are there and they are now able to flourish in a way that they couldn't before because they were being boxed in by this construct. And so with the religion thing, it's kind of the same. It's, it's what I'm revealing to you is that your brotherhood is even wider than you expected or that you initially mm-hmm. thought and that your connection to the world around you is even deeper than you understood it before. Mm-hmm. So you get, you don't just not lose any of the things that you value. You get more of all of the things you value, except for you got to go to this place. 
on this day of the week and do these things specifically. I mean, you could still do that stuff, I guess, but it, it opens you up in so many ways that I think that, you know, my argument is that there are no drawbacks, really. It's hard to get people to see that because they're so convinced that this thing is so fundamental. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a smokescreen. I think that it's kind of like what we were just saying, where the all these things are different versions of the same sort of attempt to touch on the thing that actually is, mm-hmm. right? Re- all religions are attempting to touch the same thing. This this difficult to to grapple with, this difficult to fully, you know, capture thing that mm-hmm. we just feel it. We feel it and we're reaching for it and we're reaching for it in all these different ways. But if you just say, if I think so much of the issue is that people don't realize that that's what's happening, right? They, mm-hmm. They're not realizing that the reaching is even happening. They think that the thing is what should be reached for. And, you know, they, they lose sight of that. But if you remind them, hey, there's this other thing, there's this next level, then they don't lose anything. They gain, they gain everything. I can understand what you're saying intellectually, but I think, <laughs> I think Angel, you might be failing to like take serious the experiential part of this, right? Mm-hmm. Which is deeply emotional and deeply reminiscent of the feeling of heartbreak, at least coming from the experience that I had. So yeah. yes, yes, one can intellectualize and, and I am in a place where I am able to see a lot of the different things that you're saying, but I had mm-hmm. to go through a, fa- a phase and an experience of deep sorrow. And there's no guarantee. There's no, it wasn't inevitable that I would land in the place that I landed. I could have very well have landed in a more Nietzschean place of nihilism and depression. And so that's what I'm trying to get you to grapple with a little bit more. Yeah. Well, I went through the same thing, actually. I went through Mm -hmm. deep sorrow after being the, you know, trying to be the very pious, very studious, you know, I'm going to follow all the rules because this is the most important thing in the whole world. Yeah. Like the stakes couldn't be higher, right? So I'm going to follow every rule and I'm going to ask all the questions so that I can really understand this so that I can do the, you know, be the best little Catholic boy that I can. <laughs> uh, and, you know, that didn't work out. But yeah, then I went through that pain of, oh man, like the, you know, the world is falling apart around me. Mm-hmm. And so I know, I know what you mean. And I felt that myself and I feel it in people who are in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain extent to which everyone kind of has to go through that themselves. And there's Mm -hmm. not much that anyone else can do for them, Mm -hmm. but you know, you can offer love and support and you can, you can show them that the world isn't bleak. So that's what I would do. If I had a Mm -hmm. friend who was, let's say if I had a friend who was going through this process, crisis of faith, and they're having these, these feelings, I would offer them love and support. And I would say, Hey man, I know what you're going through. I feel it. I felt it too. Mm-hmm. But here's all the benefits. Here are all the things on the other end of the rainbow here. You know, I imagine it's like, you know, I don't have kids, but I imagine that it's it's like watching your kid go through adolescence. Mm-hmm. You remember that. It sucks. It's <laughs> awful, right? But it's worth doing and it gets you somewhere good in the end. And yeah, there are those cases where people are struggling to an exceptional degree and terrible things happen, you know, terrible things that are not normal. And that's, that's a tragedy and we should do what we, whatever we can to mitigate that. But overall, I would say it's a good process to go through. It's growing pains and it's worthwhile. Mm. I don't know if that answers your question, but, you know, offer love, offer support, offer compassion yeah. and off and, and continue to remind them that this is an opening of a door. It's not, you know, your whole world crumbling and then there's nothing. 
Mm-hmm. It's maybe it is your whole world crumbling, your world as you knew it, but a new world is there to greet you after. Yeah. And it's you know, wonderful. you know, some would say that the Christian archetype is precisely that, ironically. And I did just read a, bo- a book about this, which, so the book was called The Pagan Christ. And to be honest, it's, there are parts where it's not well-cited, but the- <laughs> the, <laughs> the Pagan Christ, how dare yeah. you? <laughs> the crux, the crux of the argument in that book is that, in fact, the, there's a principle called the Christos principle. And this principle has been, has had many names throughout many centuries, throughout many cultures, but essentially what it represents is this constant dying and rebirthing that is essential to the human condition, right? One has to always experience, well, one can try to actually avoid it um, as we have as we have often done as a species, but the human condition is this process of constant ego death and then rebirth, constant ego death and then rebirth. And obviously that's, you can see that in forms of Zen Buddhism and aspects of Sufism and the Baha'i religion as well. And so I think what our difference, where our difference of opinion lies is actually two sides of the same coin. I believe that you are saying that we can simply dispense with the bad, keep the good. And I, and I don't think I disagree with that, but I think I'm saying it in a different way. I'm saying that actually you can be a Christian, you can be a Muslim, you can be a Jew, etc. But there's a way you can enter into a relationship with all of these wisdom traditions in a symbolic, symbolically as opposed to literally, such, yeah. that you, such that you can see how all of these different wisdom traditions are actually saying the same thing. Yeah, well, I fully agree with that for sure. I, I quote Bible verses all the time. Mm. I, I I find a lot of wisdom in Psalms and things like that. Mm-hmm. So it's not this. Uh, what I would say is, even though there are people like this, it's not the caricature <laughs> of atheism where it's like, no, uh, you know, every you know root and branch we must remove it. Yeah, <laughs> every dot and every cross T is absolutely awful, and there's nothing to be drawn from it at all. No, no, yeah. that's that's silly. But you know, as you were saying, the constant ego death and rebirth. I was just thinking of jujitsu, mm. right? Brazilian jujitsu. I, I did it, you know, pre-pandemic. I haven't been back, but, mm. you know, you, you have this amazing experience where you're learning this stuff and you're like, oh, okay, there's this move. And then you try it out, you run it with your partner. And then at the end of class, you have, you just basically cycle through whoever's in the class five minutes and you're trying to pin each other mm-hmm. and you're trying to use whatever you know. If you are a white belt and, you know, <laughs> there are times where my instructor who was a, who was a brown belt you know, we would match up and I'm like, all right, here we go. You know, I would try my best and it was completely useless and pointless, yeah. right? And it felt like a Python just slowly, <laughs> you know, like he didn't, his heart rate didn't even go up. Yeah. Super calm. <laughs> and I'm like panting and sweating, right? And it was like a Python just slowly enveloping me and crushing, right? Mm. And there's my ego death. And yeah. I'm like, all right, yeah, I still have a ton to learn. And then you know, five minutes later, the rotation keeps going and the brown belt instructor has matched up with the black belt instructor. Mm. And I'm watching this brown belt who just completely flattened me with no effort at all being toyed with by the black belt. And there's his ego death. And then there's another ego death for me, Mm. right? You know, a vicarious ego death there. So, you know, that's all to say that Again, it's all touching on these fundamental principles, these universal principles that you can find in many places if you're looking for them. Mm-hmm. And I think that part of the problem is kind of parochial. Kind of the problem mm. is, is limiting yourself to only seeking the wisdom through one area or through one lens or one lane. 
And so what you're saying is perfectly right. You know, you, mm-hmm. you pull from Buddhism and you pull from Christianity, you pull from Islam, and then you can pull from comic books and comedians and mm-hmm. movies and pop culture and all the stuff that you do, right? You, I think you have the right idea. I think we're totally in agreement there. Mm-hmm. It's so funny. You're the second podcaster or you're the second podcast guest I've had on the show in a row to mention Brazilian jiu-jitsu as like a spiritual <laughs> thing. So I might have try to try, yeah, I have to check that out. I feel like, yeah. I, I warn you, it's pretty expensive. <laughs> oh, is it? First, it's pretty expensive, first of all, especially in the city. Oh, that's unfortunate. I don't unfortunate. know how prohibitively expensive it would be for you, but yeah. it, it can get expensive. But the other thing is it is incredibly addictive. So once you do it, <laughs> You are not going to stop doing it. You're going to be like, I'm in this for life. This is amazing. You know, like I'll spend 90 minutes just mopping the gym for them. Wow. Okay. I'm like, no, like, like I am the mop. (laughs) Oh, I see. I see. Like being thrown on the floor. Yeah. Yeah. Like I am the mop. (laughs) I I walk back home and I'm just drenched and exhausted. Yeah. I'm like, that was, that was awesome. I can't wait to go back. Like not one victory. I didn't pin a single person. Yeah. <laughs> I was just mauled completely, but I'm like, this is amazing. Yeah. I do and want to pursue a martial art. I've been thinking about that for, for some time now. I think you'll, you'll love that one in particular because there is this intellectual element to it as mm. well. It's okay. almost, I don't know. I don't know if Joe Rogan has, has described it this way, but it's kind of like you're playing chess, but it's with your body. Mm-hmm. And you know That's the consequences cool. are right there. And but you're you're playing chess and you're learning moves and you're learning strategies and it's about who's the better chess player and you just pretzel yourself into somebody else. Mm. And it's it's so cool. Yeah. So beware because <laughs> you'll be spending money. <laughs> you'll be spending money because once you start, you're not going to want to stop. My challenge is that I want to do everything, and what I mean by that is right now I train twice a week in this practice called functional patterns which is basically this practice that tries to reconcile modernity with how our bodies were designed. It argues that we were designed, what separates us from the animal kingdom is like, we were supposed to be able to run, walk, stand, and throw really well. Like we used to climb trees, we used to do, you know, crazy shit. But (laughs) now that we've been sitting in front of our computers all day, we sort of lose that capacity. And it's all about like reactivating the core and getting used to activating the core at all times. So I love that there's like a spiritual dimension to that as well. And I also want to do a martial art because I want to know how to both execute on and control my capacity for violence. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really important, especially if one wants to be nonviolent. I think one has to actually learn how to be violent within the controlled space. Um, You understand understand violence. Yeah. I want to like learn how to ride a horse. I want to, you know, <laughs> ride a motorcycle. Yeah. Like I, there, there are all these things that I want to grow more fluent in, especially because I feel like social media and technology can get us out of sync with all the things we're capable of doing in the world because it can just bring us into this place where we're just like watching our screens, <laughs> you know, yeah. like all day. So that's watching my challenge. everybody else do the cool stuff. Yeah, exactly. It's so ironic. <laughs> so that's like my challenge. I have to figure out the money part, but also like there's only yeah. so much time in a day. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if you have any tips for how to balance all these things, I'm all ears. It's hard. It's hard because I feel the same way. Like I want to learn Japanese and I want to yeah. learn how to sail boats and I want to learn how to fly planes. And yeah. <laughs> but I can't, I, you know, it's impractical. I, I can't do all those things. Not yeah. even just money wise. There's no time. 
Right? Mm-hmm. Like I want to learn, I want to learn more instruments. I want to, you know, all this stuff. Yeah. You know, you have you seen Blade Runner? No, I have not. Okay. Should I see okay, it? So Should I, I watch it? Yes, it's a phenomenal film. But hold okay. on, you need to watch. There's there's like a zillion different cuts of it. And oh, okay. It's one of those. But there's there's <laughs> there's Blade Runner Final Cut. Watch that one. It's called okay. Final Cut. That's the best one. That's Just easy to that. remember. Uh, but basically, you know, it's this futuristic world. I think we actually passed the year that it is in the movie now. Mm. I think it's like 2022 or 2021 or something. But it's this futuristic world. And there are kind of human clones that, that mm. society uses to do like off-world, you know, labor and all kinds of stuff like that. But they only live eight years. Oh, okay. Right. For whatever reason, the technology is such that they only live eight years. And so there's this rebel group of them. They're called replicants. And there's this rebel group of them and they've gone rogue, right? And they're, mm-hmm. they need to be, they need to be captured. Mm-hmm. But the motivation that the main, the leader of this rebel group has is, you know, he wants to live longer. Eight years mm-hmm. is not enough. Yeah. He wants more, right? Uh, he's like, you know, I, I, this is like, you have no idea what I've seen and what I've been through and how beautiful life is. And like, mm-hmm. you're, you know, it's so limited. And I feel the exact same way, <laughs> even though I don't, even though I have more than eight years, you know, Yeah. like there's life. The biggest crime against us is that we only get this one life mm. and that no matter how much we pack it with experience, it's still only our experience in that way. Right. Like I'll never know what it's like to grow up in Paris, mm-hmm. right? Cause I already grew up. I grew up yeah. once. I can go, I can move to Paris, but it's still angel in Paris. Yeah. With, with my past. Like, I don't, I'm never going to know what it's like to have a different past. Mm. I'm never going to know what it's like to have a different perspective. I can only have my own. Mm-hmm. And there's an infinity of perspectives on offer. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, oh man, what a cheat, you know? Like the best you can get is watching <laughs> movies and, and reading books and things. Yeah, I actually, I feel you. when I think about the multiverse, the concept of the multiverse, I, that's what I think the multiverse actually is. It's the fact that there's an infinite mm-hmm. amount of different experiences. And like, if I'm having my own experience right now, but you're having your different experience. And this is a multiverse happening right now in between Mm -hmm. us. And I can't comprehend the like scientific explanation of the multiverse, like string theory and all of that stuff. But like, this helps me conceptualize it in a far more resonant way. Yeah, totally. I I see what you mean. Yeah. But it's still, you're still Chloe having this conversation with Angel, this version of, of both of us. And whatever the variations are, you'll never get to see them or understand them or see what they're like. And it's so annoying to me. You know, it's like, there's all this amazing food you'll never taste, basically. Yeah. It feels. Ah, yeah. I feel that way about music. There's so much music I'll never hear. Yeah. There's and, so much music and, that came before me and that will come after me that I'll never hear. Right. But even if you spend the rest of your life trying to hear every piece of recorded music that has ever been recorded. Yeah. You'll still only be hearing it as you and you'll never hear it the way I hear it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's and it's like, damn, like I'm missing out on that whole other thing. And it, but you know, obviously it's insane and impractical. But well, that's, that's what I think about. <laughs> I was reading <laughs> this. I was reading this book called Six Names of Beauty that I should have a video essay coming out about soon. Heads up to the audience. But they point out that beauty is actually about the temporality, and we wouldn't be able to perceive beauty if we number one lived forever. And number two, I think like the idea of being able to experience every other person's experience is akin to immortality um, in a way. And so I think there's something like that. It's the cost, but it's the cost we get for being able to experience beauty. 
And I think there's something quite beautiful about that. I changed my mind on that recently. <laughs> I, I, I felt the same way. You're like, no, shut it down. Yeah. No, I, I, I felt the same way for a long time because, you know, it's a theme that you hear all the time. Hmm. Uh, you get it in movies and stuff like that. Like I remember uh, in Troy, yeah. Uh, Achilles says, you know, your life is so much more beautiful because you're doomed. Yeah. It's another yeah, way the gods envy you. The gods envy yeah, you. Yeah. Right. The gods envy you. And and there's another movie called Highlander. I don't know if you've mm, seen it. It's, I haven't seen that a, one. It's a nineteen eighty-four movie, I think. It's it's awesome. Immortal people who sword fight and they have to decapitate <laughs> each other. That's the only way uh, they die. Yeah. But it's underneath the, this there's this current of there's this guy who's born in like fifteen hundred something Scotland. Mm-hmm. And he lives all the way to 1984. And he's had like three wives that he has watched die mm-hmm. and like all this stuff, right? <clears throat> and the the theme of the movie is, you know, it's painful to live forever. And mm-hmm. that mortality is actually the quintessential aspect of being human. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I agreed with that. But as I've thought about it more and more, I'm like, I don't think so. If I lived forever, <laughs> I would never get bored. That's I what people I say. I, I have to stop you right I there. I've never get bored. I've heard people say this. I, yeah. I just want you to really stop to comprehend and think about forever, Angel, and how forever can actually become torturous. The like, only thing that I can imagine being torturous about it is if people I love are not also forever. Well, that would suck. Right? Yeah. <laughs> But, but apart from that, it's like, oh, I'm going to go live in Japan for 200 years and I'm going to go learn Japanese and learn everything about Japan. There's no, you know, it's kind of like what we were just talking about. There is no end to the, the things you can experience and the life yeah. that you can have. There's no end to it. And if you had all the time in the, in the universe, you can at least suck up a greater amount of it. And, Listen, I, and I don't know. I would love to live longer. But forever, <laughs> forever, it's like you, you actually won't be able to experience the one experience that everyone else gets to experience, which is death. Right. I'll trade that. I'll trade <laughs> the one experience for literally every, every other experience. Literally every other. And you have, you have no idea what's going to happen after death. So you'll just no, be missing. You'll just be missing out. I don't. But I can't see myself ever getting tired of life, right? Except, you know, obviously, if it's my a very, this is a very Promethean perspective, I have to say. This is also, I think we're coming full circle because <laughs> um, if the thing that all of the religions are actually tapping into or touching upon is this universal human experience, this, this human condition that we've been discussing, and if part of the human condition, part of what's quintessential to the human condition is birth and death, birth and mm-hmm. death. If you become immortal, you have just exited out of the human condition. Like fundamentally, you, I don't think it can be said yeah. that you are human anymore. And so there is this, and I could talk for hours about this, um, but there is this <laughs> societal impetus right now, especially I would argue in our digitized technological age, you see this theme in Silicon Valley. The metaphor that I would use is like a desire for the heavens without being rooted in the earth. Right. It's like all scale all the time. I want nothing but scale. Right. You see this in the business world. I want absolute scale. Um, you see this in people. I think they're, I mean, I know that there are people in the scientific world working on immortality. Right. And like, and, techn- and the intersection of technology and science tra- trying to pursue that. And they want the heavens, the heavens, the heavens. Like they want Icarus. Right. Without having fully internalized the meaning of that story. And so I think there's, mm-hmm. when we talk about what all of the, wisdom traditions are actually touching upon, it seems to me that whether you're talking about religious people, whether you're talking about atheists, whether you're talking about agnostics, Mm -hmm. 
societally, we have not actually fully internalized what all of those traditions are, are really getting at, you know, and, and this is a partially a failure to accept that there could be no life without presence of death, that they're two sides of the same coin, that one requires the other because death gives way for new life and so on and so forth. Yeah. So true. If there, if everyone was immortal, we'd run out of space pretty fast. But I don't know. I, I wonder if it's kind of like saying that integral to what a car is, is running out of gas. You know, yeah. Like it isn't a car if it doesn't run out of gas sometimes. Hmm. And I don't know if that's true because <laughs> I don't know if that's what a car actually is or is supposed to be. I wonder if that's just us having to grapple with the fact that it's currently inevitable that cars will run out of gas. I think reality and... itself. Sorry, I cut you off. Go ahead. <laughs> no, it's, no, it's okay. It's okay. I think that reality itself, so not just humans, not just cars, you know, name something else. I think that reality itself is Taoist. In the Taoist conception, there's, you know, the the yin and the yang, the black and the white. There's a little bit of black and white. There's a little bit of white and black. We could use that as a whole conversation about race. But I, I think that that is fundamentally true about like all the way down to quantum physics. I think that that is true. So I don't think there's a reality that is possible without the dance between opposites. Yeah, sure. And, but you know, it's uh, maybe it's, uh, I can see a reality where, I mean, obviously none of this is going to (laughs) happen, but but I can see, I can see something where the tension is inherent in the experience itself. Right. So I can go Hmm. live 200 years in Japan. Right. But those are still 200 years that are passing. And that I didn't spend somewhere else. And but so then, there's always going to be that, you know. But after I the 200, but after the 200 years, couldn't you just then go spend 200 more years somewhere else? I mean, then you could yeah, have but it it's all. Not, but it's not the same 200 years, right? Like imagine it's like, oh, I spent from 1500 to, to 1700 in Europe. And then I yeah. spent 1700 to 2000 in America. Those are two different <laughs> 200 year periods, right? And yeah. I will have experienced them differently. So, so mm. the laws of physics still apply. Like I can only be in one place at once. I can only experience one thing at once. <laughs> the only thing that not dying does is it allows me to experience more things, but only at one time, one at a time, you know? Have you ever seen everything everywhere all at once? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. What did you, th- what did you think about that film? Cause this film deals with this specific issue. It does kind of, yeah. but it's fine. People would say like, oh, you need to see everything everywhere all at once. And I'm like, that sounds exhausting. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but I did see it. And it's funny because I have, I have a few thoughts about it. The first thought is that that movie would totally make no sense to most people yeah. if it weren't for at, if it weren't for like 15 years of Marvel movies now. Oh, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, like, yeah. because they spend no time explaining yeah. the, the concept. Yeah, go, yeah, 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 it's a multiverse and all this stuff. <laughs> and then the audience just goes, oh, multiverse. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like 10 years ago, they'd be like, wait, what? Right? Um, so there's that. And I thought it was such a phenomenal way, uh, such a, a weird, bombastic, totally exaggerated, crazy mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. to tell a story about a mother-daughter relationship. Like that's yeah. what it really is. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it's phenomenal. And it's, uh, yeah, I think, again, it's like this bizarre <laughs> thing of, you still can only get this one life. 
Mm-hmm. No matter what, whether you were immortal or not, you still only get this one life. And it's all about what are you doing from moment to moment? How are you maximizing that moment? It's wild though, because the daughter is able to experience multiple lives simultaneously and she becomes a nihilist as a result of that. Because she's like, there's well, no point. The end, until she realizes that there is a point. Right? Yes. So she's just misguided. So maybe it's that process that... Yeah. And actually, yeah, I think I think it's what we were talking about earlier. Like, you know, the, the mother is watching her daughter go through this thing. Mm-hmm. And it's an exaggerated, crazy, you know, space version of it. Yeah. But it's it's basically that same thing. So I'm watching you struggle through this, but at the end of it, you find meaning. At the mm-hmm. end of it, you find you find that there is a point, that it was there all along. Well, yeah. interest it's interesting though, because there's this line where they say, where the mother says nothing matters. And I wouldn't have understood. I would not have understood that if I hadn't taken a foray into the East in terms of wisdom traditions. Mm-hmm. Like I would not have understood that if I hadn't studied Buddhism or Taoism. And I do mm-hmm. wonder someone who's coming from like the opposite perspective, like, and they saw that movie, how they might receive that or how, like, did that make sense yeah. to them? Were they just like, what are you talking about? You know, like, yeah, but yeah, I, agree. I saw that and I was like, exactly. <laughs> but it's, it's such a beautiful moment, right? Yeah. She, she says nothing matters and then they hug each other and it's, she meant it in a good way. And so yeah. there's this incongruity. If you're not somebody who obsessively thinks about this stuff like we do. Right. There's yeah. Incongruity. Like, why are they excited about nothing matter? Yeah. And they leave you with that question. And then maybe, maybe, you know, you think about it. Mm-hmm. But I love that mm-hmm. because for me, it was nothing matters. Isn't that great? Because now yeah. we get to make matters. Mm. Like that's what, that's what I've, that's how I took it. Mm-hmm. So know, you take no it as the same yeah, you you took it as the same like atheistic like revolt against this authoritarian sky god essentially like it's a similar yeah. there's a through line here is what I, I wouldn't <laughs> I never thought of it like that but yeah. I guess so I guess it's it's isn't it great like the page is blank and we get to do whatever mm, we want yeah we get to make the most of it you know we're we're not trapped in we're not trapped in someone else's meaning yeah we get to make our own. So nothing yeah. matters like objectively or, or universally outside of ourselves. Mm-hmm. We create meaning. We are meaning and we create meaning. Mm-hmm. Isn't that great? Yeah. That means the possibilities are boundless. Like that's how I saw it. Gotcha. Is that how you, is that how you heard it? I, I heard it in a Zen Buddhism way, which is, I didn't hear it as nothing matters. I heard it as no thing matters, which is a little bit complicated, but basically there's this meditation mantra that I say to myself, which I got from Verveki, which is, may I realize the inexhaustible no-thingness of my being and befriend mm-hmm. myself with loving, loving kindness or loving compassion. And there's this idea in Zen, which I think has actually been somewhat um, affirmed by quantum physics, which is that like, <laughs> <laughs> which is that everything is like, what matters or what's alive is not necessarily the things themselves, but the relationship between the things. And, and we see things as objectified things. But in fact, if we keep peeling back the onion, we'll see that there's like space in, in everything. Right. And so there's a kind of relationality that's at the core of every thing um, as opposed to the thing itself. So when I heard her say that, that's what I heard. I will also just add though that, yes, everything you're saying is great and your interpretation is wonderful. And that is a lot of responsibility. Oh yeah. Historically speaking, institutions like the church, like the mosque, right? Like, right, like the synagogue would 
be able to hold the, let's say the projections that we as human beings would project onto or our idea of the divine, right? They would be able to hold those things. And there is a lot of work and sweat and toil that has to occur if we are moving into a period, and I, which I think we are, where those institutions can no longer hold it, where the human being has to take responsibility for those projections. And that is going to be hard work in part because, you know, this is actually more of an argument for authoritarianism to a certain extent, meaning authorities, right? Mm-hmm. There are no longer any guides to tell us what to do, right? There are no longer any guideposts or lighthouses to light the way. Every human being must figure it out, <laughs> you know? And I don't want to say on their own. To a certain extent, it will be on their own though for, for a while because another thing we have to do is figure out how to rebuild communities in this mm-hmm. new world. Mm-hmm. And I just don't want to trivialize the weight of that that people will have to carry now moving forward. I agree with that too. It's definitely not trivial and it definitely is a lot of responsibility, but it is kind of the way that it must be, you know, as you grow, <laughs> This is the way, the Mandalorian. This is, this is the way, yeah. It's, well, because, you know, you can't be a kid forever. Right? Yeah. Your parents can't take care of you forever. Yeah. It used to be, it used to be that you kind of just ran around doing whatever and your head was in the clouds and your parents made sure that you ate when you needed to eat and yeah. they made sure you had clothes and they made sure those clothes were clean. And they made sure you went to school and mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff, right? They took you to the dentist and the doctor. And, you know, you have oh, no such concept a time. of any of this. Yeah. <laughs> right. You have no concept of any of this stuff, right? You're just kind of like, my parents keep bothering me and all I want to do is play. <laughs> but then you grow, you get a little bit older and you start to want and get more autonomy. You start picking yeah. out your own clothes and maybe you get a job and, you know, then you, you start kind of self-directing your academic experience. You mm. start picking classes. and you know, then you want to borrow the car and then it's yeah. about, well, you have to make sure you have a license. You have to make sure you pass the test. You have to make sure you observe the rules of the road and stay safe. You know, you have to yeah. meet your curfew. You have to, you know, make sure you don't get into trouble, all these sorts of things. The responsibility is being slowly put upon you mm-hmm. as you grow older and mature and become a fully functioning, hopefully, you know, self-sustaining, sufficient adult. Mm-hmm. And that's what we are doing collectively, in my view. We're shifting from one phase to the other. Like we mm-hmm. have to abandon, we have to abandon this idea that our parents can take care of us forever. We have to learn to take care of ourselves. And I would mm-hmm. argue that our parents, our lighthouses, our guideposts weren't very good all the time. <laughs> you know, sometimes they were, sometimes they weren't. So yeah. like let's not let's not idealize them either. Mm-hmm. Um, but we need this. We need this this shift. And yeah, it comes with responsibility, but it's important. And it's a good thing ultimately, because it will free us to be more autonomous, to be able to go out into the world and be our own, you know, I, I agree with everything you're saying about the interconnectedness of everything, but you know, mm-hmm. in this kind of, in this sense, we are our own individual beings operating in the world. Mm-hmm. We need to be able to take care of ourselves because then we can take care of each other. Mm-hmm. And it's a give and take between collectivism and individuality. I don't, I don't buy that binary. I don't buy mm-hmm. the dichotomy. I think one begets the other. You need mm-hmm. to be an individual in order to become part of a collective. Mm-hmm. And a collective is a bunch of individuals. Yeah. You know? So if you lose either of those things, you lose something crucial. Does that make sense? I feel like I was rambling now. But- no, that was good. I actually really love that you brought up the adolescence, the, the an- analogy 
of adolescence because I just watched this conversation between Verveke and Jordan Hall, who is very interesting. He's in like, he used to be in, I guess, the tech world. He's still in the tech world, but he's trying to grapple with these questions, but how they <clears throat> land in the tech world specifically. And they talked about the importance of mourning adolescence and how we as a society, and I'd be curious to get your take on this, we as a society actually, I'm talking about America specifically, we incentivize people to go into prolonged adolescence. And we do not, we like, there's no sense of eldership in our society at all. And we sort of have the value of prolonged Peter Pan-ship right? In our society. And I think you can actually see a little bit of this in the tech world specifically, where the move is to design all of these products that take responsibility for us instead of having us take responsibility for our own lives. And so I think that the analogy of overcoming or transitioning out of adolescence is spot on. However, there is to me a tension between that move that we have to make and some of the values that our society are actually promoting, which are saying the, to do the opposite. You know, given that moving out of adolescence comes with its own sort of grief in the first place, because you just have to mourn a loss, you're going to the next stage. How do we deal with that on top of the fact that the society that we live in is in certain ways telling us, no, 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 no stay a child forever? Yeah, I think you're right about the tech stuff, but uh, I think it's self-evident that that's not working. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's like, here's the thing that's going to take responsibility for us, and it doesn't. <laughs> and it doesn't work. And we're seeing it not work, and we're dealing with the fact that it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So we're fighting these like kind of surrogate parents that can remain our parents forever. Mm-hmm. And it's not working because you can't do that. You can't have it. It's kind of like a natural law almost. Like we keep yeah. looking for this thing, and we're not going to get it. Uh, so I don't know how many times we need to get smacked in the face. <laughs> I think it varies, yeah. <laughs> but we're getting smacked in the face, and you know, we're going to have to wake up and go, oh, okay, yeah, I guess it's time to grow up a little bit. Mm. Uh, these tools we have could be great, but we're going to have to use them wisely. You know, I, I liken social media to a chainsaw. It's a tool Oof. and there are many tools, yeah. but it's, a, it's a, you know, a chainsaw is a particularly dangerous tool, right? <laughs> yeah. you, can do, you can do really productive, great stuff with it. But mm-hmm. if you don't know what you're doing, if you don't pay attention, if you're not mindful, you will hack your arm off or your leg <laughs> off or something, yeah. you know? The consequences yeah. are, are dire because it's a very powerful tool. Yeah. We need to learn how to use it. You know, mm. stop for a minute, read the manual, pay attention, put on your goggles or whatever. We, you know, we're, we're in that phase of trying to do that. And mm-hmm. I think um, a lot of the tension comes from the fact that, you know, your, your fifth grade class is kind of an arbitrarily defined group of people based mm-hmm. on age. This is your age group. So generally speaking, you're in the same educational, psychological, intellectual place, mm-hmm. but not really. Right? There are kids <laughs> at the top of the class. There are kids way behind. Yeah. There's a bunch of people in the middle. We're the same way. We're scrambling towards this societal next phase, let's say. I don't want to say maturity because there's a lot to do, Yeah. but we're stumbling our way through to this next phase, right? And there are some people lagging and there are some people way ahead and there's a bunch of people in the middle. And that's where all that tension is coming from. Mm. But that doesn't make me despair because, yeah, you know, we all graduated fifth grade and then we all graduated (laughs) sixth grade and there's remedial things you can do for the people who are lagging behind. We can figure out ways to make it so that the best kids in the class are helping the worst kids in the class. Mm -hmm. And we all keep graduating together, right? And then people who get left behind, you know, we shouldn't (laughs) want that. We We should do something about that. 
you know, the analogy breaks down a little bit, but <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that's, that's kind of what I think we're struggling. We're figuring this out. It's hard. Nobody knows all the answers for sure. That's yeah. why we have each other. That's why we have each other. That's the best part. We're not alone. I love that. I think that's a great place for us to stop. Angel, thank you for joining the pod. Where can we find you? Speaking of social media. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so my website is angeleduardo.com. I am at Strangel Ed Weird on Twitter. It's supposed to be a play on my name, but one character limit off. Mm. It's supposed to be Strangel Ed Weirdo. And fairforall.org is where you can find my work with Fair. And uh, yeah, uh, it's awesome talking to you always. Very Likewise. Glad to have done it. Yeah. yeah. 